0: Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, our, our subjects today, um, love and sadness, out-of-body experiences, exploring an MPMR, focus, awareness, the dream reality, information and subjective experience, some questions on the Seth information, the Seth books, sleep patterns and eating patterns, a question on... Uh, boredom, Western Culture and Consciousness, Relationships, Ego and Fear, and some questions on your personal growth, Tom. So we'll start with Justin's question that came in just a, a while ago. Um, Justin asks, it seems to me that the term love, as it is used in relation to the larger consciousness system, contains an element of Sadness. The best analogy that I can think of is a good blues song that has the ability to stir a deep feeling within us. Is love actually more of a joyful sadness and saddening joy than simply being a warm fuzzy? Would you say this love is the stuff or building blocks of all that is?
1: Uh, Love does have a component of sadness to it. Um, I think I talked about that in the book someplace. Uh, it's not all just joy. You know, you think about, oh, you know, you're a being of love, then you think maybe you're just a being that's in a state of joy and rapture all the time, but that's not the way it is. And one of the reasons that sadness comes along with love is that with love it's about other. You're, you're caring. And sometimes you have to sit there kind of helplessly and watch other do things that are self-destructive you know watch others struggling with lessons and there's nothing you can do to help them there's nothing you you can't go in and say look you need to do you know you need to be like this that's not helpful you know they have to come to that on their own they have to grow up on their own and you can be as helpful as you can but you still have to step back and let them do it and sometimes they struggle for a long time before they do it or maybe they never actually grow up in the way that you, you know, and they they need to. And that's sad. So you can see people. You can uh, maybe look at your own family and see dysfunctional elements of it, where ego is just creating bad feelings between people. And you could see if they could just let that go, you know, and uh, take responsibility of who and what they are, rather than having to blame it on somebody else when things don't work right. And you can see all these problems, but there isn't anything you can do about it. Yet you care about these people, and you love these people, and there's a little sadness that they just uh, function this way, and it's just the way it is. And you have to let that sadness be and let it go, and uh, you'll never be joyous about it. Oh joy, my dysfunctional family! You know that's not a that's not a joyful thing, but you have to accept it. It's just the way it is and you have to accept them and let them be just the way they are and not try to meddle or push or explain things to them more than what they're ready to hear and just live with that. So sadness is a part of caring and love because not everybody is going to be in a state of joy and you have empathy for those people and as you have empathy, that uh, sometimes turns into sadness. So yes, and I, and I think a lot of uh, blues songs kind of emphasize that a lot because uh, basically the blues are about uh, difficult situations that people are struggling with and, and having to get through. And yes, mostly it's their own egos and their own needs and their own you know, desires and things that are make, causing them the trouble, but that doesn't mean their pain is any less. It's still real pain, even if self-inflicted, and if you're empathetic toward it, then you can feel that, that depth of, of sadness that they're saying about or that they're feeling, and you can have empathy with them. So love often has a sad component to it. But it's not sad in the sense of you know, boo-hoo-hoo, sad. You know, It's not the, something that makes you want to cry. It's just a realization that this is the way life is, and this is the way people are. And you have to give them the respect to be whoever they are and still care. Because another dysfunctional view would be to say, oh, those people are all messed up. You know, I don't want to have anything to do with them. They create all this drama. They create all this sadness and hand-wringing and, you know, the soap operas going on. And, uh, geez, they just need to grow up. You know, I don't even want to be around them because of that. You see, that's all about yourself. You know, you need to let them be whoever they are and still be able to care for them and give what you can. And what you can't, you just have to accept that that's the way it is. So, I think that's, the, that's kind of the love-sadness connection. Love is, is caring about other people and sometimes that can be sad when you're caring about people who are, who are in pain, particularly when you know that pain is self-inflicted. That makes it even sadder because it's an unnecessary pain. It's a pain that they're creating and yet they can't see that they are creating it. They they haven't gotten there yet, and there's really nothing you can do to explain it. They have to grow to that point. So, yeah, does that kind of answer your question?
0: Yeah, definitely. It makes a lot of sense. And as you were saying that, I'm thinking about observing myself, too, and my own struggles and knowing, you know, I need to do better. And it's it's almost like – maybe comparable to having to do a big job in your yard or something. It's a lot of work, but it's it's fun at the same time. So, you know, seeing myself and my own struggles, there's a bit of sadness to it, but there's also a lot of excitement that I know that I'm seeing and that I can make forward progress. So it's kind of uh, exciting in that sense, too. And the sure. same, like you were saying, with other people.
1: Sure. You have to... Uh you, know, you can have two kinds of personalities. One that uh, sees a silver lining in every dark cloud and one that sees a dark lining in every silver cloud. And you know if you have something that's really difficult to do even if it's just a lot of yard work you can look at it in two ways. You can say oh man it's just you know what a job I have to get it done. I really don't want to do it but I know it has to be done so I'm gonna grit my teeth and go out there and do it anyway. Or you can look at it, you know, that's finding the dark lining, right? You're you're emphasizing on the negative aspects of it. But you can emphasize the positive aspects of it. And I'm going to be outside. It's going to be a lot of fresh air. I'm going to get some exercise. You know, my body's going to feel good when I do this. It's going to be a lot of work, but it's going to really be good for me. I need the exercise. The uh, yard needs the work. Everything will look better. And it's going to be really nice. You know, this is, this is uh, going to be effort worth doing. And go out with a... With kind of a smile, and different people would approach that same thing, you know, in those two different ways. You can grumble and uh, about it, or you can see the value in it and just do it cheerfully. That's, um, you know, kind of living, uh, you know, gracefully with those things that need to be done. We often struggle with the things that need to be done that we don't want to do, but uh, if we learn to find the silver lining in that cloud, it uh, makes it easier. Yeah, so that can, that can be some of the sadness as well. Oh, no, you know, I've got to get through all this stuff. Oh, no, Aunt Susie's coming, and she always, you know, grabs my cheeks and pinches them and then giggles at me, you know, and I just, uh, but you have to find that Aunt Susie's just trying, that's the way she's expressing her caring and, and, and like for you, and you just have to let that go. Find a, the silver part of it, not the dark part of it. All right. Thank you.
0: Tom, um, is there a point that where it might become unhealthy to interact with dysfunctional behavior?
1: Yes. There it is. You can, you know, well, well, let's take different cases. If there's somebody that uh, is a neighbor or a coworker that you don't really have to interact with, okay, now that's different than a spouse or a child or a you know, a mother or father or somebody that you do have to interact with. But if it's somebody that is optional, the amount of time you spend with them, and they are very dysfunctional, and you try your best to be positive with them and to maybe offer uh, alternatives, uh, ways to maybe looking at things. You're upbeat, you're cheerful, but they just keep, you know, grousing and complaining and they blaming everybody. And it's just kind of a downer being around them then find someplace else to be. Yes, it's a time to just let them go. You're not being helpful to them. Matter of fact, you're probably annoying them, which is why they're griping so much while you're around, because here you are, Little Mr. Sunshine or Little Miss Sunshine, and they want to gripe and complain, and you're being all sunny and bright. It just annoys them, you see, because they're, they're looking at a world that they know and that they, are, they believe is dark and, and uh, unhappy. And here you are happy in it. So it basically calls their view into question, and that annoys them. So you just, the best thing to do, they're not ready for that yet. If they would reach out and try to, try to uh, pick up some of your joy and try to lighten up and uh, whatever, then, yes, you should stay there and see if you can't help them. But if you know you're not helping them, you've tried, it's not doing any good, then you can just leave them. They need to stew in their own juice a little bit before they're going to be ready to grow up. Uh, you can't force people and you can't keep dogging people and, and uh, you know, kind of nipping at their heels to change because you know it would be good for them. You have to not uh, have that sort of, of, uh, of ego invested in it. You just have to let them go at their own rate and sometimes it's time to leave. But now if we're talking about your spouse, You know, that's a little different. You know, you just can't say, well, I won't come home for a week. You know, that doesn't work. You have to uh, you have to deal with it. And even then, it might be a spouse. And if you try to deal with it and try to deal with it and it just doesn't work, it's incompatible. You're not helping them. They're not helping you. And the whole thing is dysfunctional. Well, then it's time to let it go instead of keep trying to hammer a, a square peg into a round hole. It's better to uh, let those people find different situations in which they might blossom, in which they might uh, express themselves more fruitfully. So, yeah, there's a time when relationships need to end, as well as, you know, when they they need to get together. So there's nothing, uh, you know, a relationship is only as good as, as, as the people who are in it find it. If it's useful to them, if it's good for them, then it, it's worth working on and worth uh, worth spending time in, but if it just isn't, then it's a detriment, and it ends up being more trouble for everybody around you, as well as the people involved, to keep you know struggling and keep pushing on something that doesn't work. So there is a time to let to let go of relationships, and even even dear ones like a husband and a wife. You know, sometimes the dysfunction spills over into the kids' lives as well. And it would be better if those two people could be happy someplace else and put the kids in a happy environment. That's actually a a better solution than uh, just them staying together and being miserable with each other all the time and spreading that misery around to everybody that's around them, including their kids. So, yes, relationships can come and go, and it's sometimes good for them to go.
0: Okay, the next question from Oliver, a very interesting one, is on boredom, Western culture, and consciousness. Scientific studies on boredom revealed that people who are often bored have a significantly lower life expectancy and that boredom is caused by not being able to influence your own thought processes in a meaningful way. What is the relationship between a person experiencing boredom and their state of consciousness? And is there a direct connection between boredom and Western culture?
1: Well there probably is a direct connection. You know, boredom is, a, is kind of an interesting thing. We, we think of it directly as somebody really doesn't have anything to do. They're bored. You know, they have no challenge. They have nothing that's um, um, egging them on or giving them, a, giving them a reason to go out and be. So they're, they're just bored with the situation. Well, in, in Western culture, we're usually over busy, too much data to process. And I think our, our boredom tends to come from an, an inability to connect to others and what others are doing in other situations. In other words, there may be people around this bored person who are doing all sorts of things. Oh, come on and join us. Uh, we're going to so-and-so's party tonight. Nah, I don't want to, you see. You, you've, the idea of not connecting, not getting involved in things, not volunteering your time, you know, down at the, whatever, you know, some place that needs volunteers, you know, not getting involved with life, that turns into what most Westerners have as boredom. And that comes from being jaded. It's like nothing seems to work out. Nothing seems to return anything. Nothing uh, seems to be of any value to a person. And that's beginning to now sound like clinical depression, you see, So we might even talk about boredom as being a, you know, kind of a borderline symptom of of depression where you don't find the value in things. Everything seems to be kind of valueless. And, of course, that's just an interpretation. That's a person who is so self-focused, I guess, not self-centered, but self-focused, that it's hard for them to connect with other things and other activities. There could be a lot of things they might do, but that jaded, been there, done that, nothing's new, it's boring, 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 uh, is is a result of being overloaded, too much to do, and things being too superficial. So much of our relationships and the things we do are very superficial. And people get tired of all the superficial things. Well, you know, you can dig in deeper if you want to. You know, you could if you had the, you know, had the interest, dig into almost any interest uh, more deeply. And uh, that's not a hard thing to find significant things to do and to do with depth. It's just if you don't see those things, if you say nothing is of value, everything's boring. I think that is a, a Western culture. Thing that comes from too much overload of data. And because we have so much overload of data, we tend to do everything superficially. We don't read anymore. We skim. You know, we don't really have in-depth relationships. We chat, you know, that sort of thing. And when everything is superficial, then pretty soon everything seems valueless. Well, it's not that everything is valueless. It's just it's the way we're approaching it. It's the way we're interacting with it, and we can change that. So it's a perception problem. It's a self-focused perception problem, and uh, I think it is pretty prevalent. There is a lot of of And yes, people who are bored aren't going to live as long. They're not going to be as happy. Their health is going to be poor. That's because, you know, the mind leads and the body follows. If the mind is in this... Uh, um, what do we call it, Uh, uh, pre-depression state, then it's unhappy. It's not up. It's not positive. And that makes the cells in the body not positive, kind of lethargic and not doing anything. Bored people, instead of getting up and volunteering at the local, uh, um, you know, let's say the local hospital or uh, someplace that's that's doing... uh, what is it called? Big Sisters, Big Brothers was a program, at least uh, in the U.S., where you could you could join a program to help um, anywhere from nine and ten up through teenagers, uh, just by giving them somebody positive to interact with, that, that uh, an adult that that uh, you know wasn't trying to beat them, sort of thing. And there, these kinds of programs will give you a lot of depth, and they're everywhere. You know, almost every good cause needs volunteers, needs people to get involved. So it's not that there's nothing to do. It's just that uh, we do everything so shallowly that we get a sense of there being no substance anymore to our lives. Now, what do you do about that? You know, how do you wake a person up out of that sort of um, attitude? I don't know. Maybe you uh, just ask them to come with you and you go do something somewhere that's meaningful, something that's that's significant. Uh, find a hobby, you know. Buy a camera and become a photographer. Um, you know, go to a museum and appreciate art. You know, do something that uh, has some depth and meaning to it. And if they had people to do that with, it might pop them right right out of it. But yes, it'll affect your health. It'll affect your lifespan. It'll affect your relationships because when you have that attitude that there isn't any value in anything, and you devalue everything, and when you devalue the people in your relationships, those relationships. Start to unravel and uh, they come apart. So then, pretty soon, that just reinforces the fact that nothing has any value in it. Look, all your relationships are coming apart. You see, so you're creating your own reality here by your attitudes. You're making the things that you are seeing. You're making them come true by the way you're by the way you're acting. So it's a difficult uh, downward spiral to get somebody out of. You know, to see what they're doing, they're creating their misery and then. Help them move into something more interesting i don't know it's a difficult thing. Depression is a hard thing to get people out of it, uh, usually depression is a is a fear based thing. People are afraid that there's no value that they give no value, that they're shallow, and in that fear. They seem, they come to see everything else as that way, the way they fear themselves to be. It kind of justifies, well, I'm okay. I'm just like everybody else. Everybody's shallow like I am. And pretty soon they kind of walk themselves into a depression. But it starts typically with fears about self. Did that uh, get to the root of what you were asking, Oliver?
2: Yeah. Thank you very much, Tom. It did.
0: One more thing on that on that subject, Tom. You spoke a, a lot in Spokane about the positive aspects of the internet, and here we're seeing how that can be an overload. Um, I think it is the internet and information has spread to most other cultures now, which you have said is a positive thing in that information is available that never was available before. Uh, all of the bubbles of enlightenment can, be, can come together because of all of this um, information that's available to everyone. But I suppose it has good and a- bad aspects to it, too, as far as um, this overload. Um, but I don't know of too many cultures uh, that the Internet hasn't affected
1: Yes, well, the internet, I think, is a wonderful thing. I'm a big booster of the internet, and uh, you know, net neutrality and all of that. It's very, very important because where we are, where we are headed in our evolution is that humankind, and a lot, that's not just human, but all consciousness and all of the other things of the planet Earth itself. We're all to evolve to a state of cooperation. And, and the cooperative interaction with each other okay? rather than where we are now, which is a state of it's all about me, how much can I get, how much you know, can I grab and hold on to, and uh, how much can I get and how little do I have to give for it? You know, it's, it's all about the person maximizing um, what they want in world at others' expenses rather than a cooperative. How can we work together to make this a better place for everybody? Well, we're, we're, we're growing up to that, which means we're, we're, we're defining a new system, a, a new system of, of interaction rather than everybody being an individual. There has to be a larger system of cooperation. You can't do that without communications. So the Internet allows us to communicate and become a system. Humanity as a, as a group because humanity is now all netted together. Uh, in a physical way that we can communicate, we can share, we can empathize with each other. Um, that's an important part. But like any information source, you can dig as deeply or stay shallow you know, as you wish. I mean, if you hop to a different channel every two or three minutes on the Internet, well, some people do the same thing on their TV sets. They'll sit down to their TV set, and they'll hop from channel to channel to channel, and no channel ever stays on more than five or ten minutes before you hop to the next one. You see, that's what I'm talking about is data overload and shallow. They, They can't sit still and focus long enough to get into anything because they've been there, done that, and have to jump to something else for hoping of some kind of novelty that will entertain them. You see, rather than looking for depth, that could instead of entertain them, that could occupy them, that could uh, focus them on the depth. So that's just an individual problem. I, don't, I wouldn't blame that on the TV or the Internet. That's the individual who's having that difficulty. And um, you, can, you can skim around on the Internet and never actually get anything out of it, or you can dig in very deeply to subjects and study them and learn a great deal on the Internet. And that's just, I guess it's part of the same question that Oliver. Talked about, you know, if you're in that state of needing constant entertainment, well, that puts you in an emotional state. I'd say equivalent to most, uh, you know, two-year-olds or three-year-olds. They are in a state of needing constant entertainment. If you uh, let them, you know, be by themselves or just make them sit still for five minutes, it's almost excruciating for them to sit still for five minutes. They don't. They don't like that. Take them to a nice restaurant and say, no, just sit down and be quiet till your food arrives, and you know it's a disaster. They can't do that. You know, they've got to get down and run or thump or break something or scream or do something just because there's no stimulation there otherwise. And sometimes adults are like that too. But that means they're still, in a, in a large part of their being, they, they haven't outgrown, you know, being two or three years old. They're still in that level of needing constant entertainment, and uh, they just have to grow up, which is really what it's what it's about here. It's not about self-focused, you know, entertainment. Entertain me. I'm bored. Entertain me with something else. You know, I'm bored. Entertain me with something else. It's not that the world is boring. It's that the individual is uh, not connected. The individual is rudderless. There's no. Uh, there's no roots forming anywhere. That's, that's the difficulty. So I won't, uh, I won't blame misuse of the Internet on the Internet. That's, that's uh, on, the, uh, on the individuals. Of course it's there. But children, no matter how old they are, even if it's a 45-year-old, you know, a 2-year-old, that, uh, you know, they're going to be the way they are until they grow up. Tom, so I,
2: I have thought about uh, the advantages. This body, by the way, I, uh, I have thought about the advantages of internet also, and I found it quite interesting to be something less, let's say, sticky than our uh, reality. I think you used that word uh, sometime in the past. That this PMR reality is sticky in uh, the way how causality works, and uh, it seems to me that. Um, on the internet, if somebody uh, is let's say searching with a, a certain attitude with certain beliefs for certain things, he will get fed exactly uh, what he's uh, searching basically it's reaffirming uh, the belief systems, the expectations uh, that's the way also how Google uh, uses their searching algorithms uh, and personalize per uh, doing a personal output for everybody based on, I don't know, like 60 attributes they uh, secretly collect and uh, the same way uh, also Facebook and maybe other outlets uh, in Internet work. So basically, uh, we create our own reality uh, or our own perception on the Internet by how we, what do we expect. And it's less sticky than this reality because it's, in a sense, uh, information. And uh, I found it quite interesting when compared to M- NPMR experiences where somebody's fears get materialized uh, and uh, basically the fear will be haunting the person who has the fear <laughs> and it's his own creation.
1: Yes, that's true. The Internet is like that. You know, The Internet uh, will enable you to only you know, only look at the things you want to look at, right? So if you have a belief that things are a certain way, then you'll only look at sites that confirm that belief. And the sites that that, uh, give you information to the contrary, you blow those off as being wrong or, uh, you know, misinformed. And you only find the sites that confirm your belief as the ones that those are the ones that are really informed and they know what's going on. Well, that's a person who's trapped in a belief trap. And, you know, it's like the two-year-old that's trapped in, in a in a place of needing constant entertainment, you know that's just the way people are, and they can do that. You're right. The internet is uh, is less sticky. It's less. Um, what that means is we have less interaction and less feedback. We tend to we tend to create out of our out of our heads, you know, what we want. We see just what we want, and we ignore everything else. Whereas in the in the physical world. We can't just ignore everything else. If we, if we ignore everything else, some, some of that else will reach out and slap us occasionally and say, look here, can I get your attention, you see, whereas on the Internet, we don't have that, that kind of stickiness that reach out and slaps us. We can control everything uh, that we see and what we look at. That's why we have to start from a, from a um, point of um, open-minded skepticism. So if you start from a point of open-minded skepticism, then you're not as likely to get sucked into some of those belief traps and then end up uh, getting tunnel vision because you're only looking at the things you want to see and missing everything, uh, missing everything else. So again, that's people who are who, are who they are, and that's what they want to do with it. So the Internet will allow everybody to be who they are. It's not going to force anybody to grow up. But for those persons that want to grow up, and that do have open minds and are skeptical, well, there's a wealth of information and connection out there that they can use. And for those that aren't, well, they aren't. You know, it's not making them less so. It's, uh, you know, they are, uh, you know, if if you took the Internet away from them, that wouldn't open them up any. They would just be closed-minded in a less rich environment. So it's just the way they are. So it is a good place to grow up because there's there's lots of opportunities to see things from different perspectives, whether you search it out or not. But you're right, it's a less, it's a less sticky, more cerebral space where you can order it the way you want to see it. And if you're in a belief trap, you just uh, create what you believe in. And you'd do that anyway, with or, with or without it. At least you have opportunity to do differently within the internet.
2: Yes, I I find it interesting that, uh, again, how uh, the characteristics of the the system are uh, fractually, uh, let's say, um, interpreted into all the realities. Uh, Everything works the same way in all levels, so to speak.
1: Yes. It does. That, that, yeah, the fractal process gets, you know, it, it seems like a good theory when you first hear about it, but then the more you think about it and look into it, you see these patterns showing up over and over again. It's like I was, I was commenting earlier, um, um, this fellow Richard Bain is trying to come up with an economic system and he's basing it on biology, the economics of the biological system. You know, the, the biological system has certain nutrients, certain things that all the cells need, you know, and these get parsed out to all the cells, and cells have different functions, and things come and go inside the cell. It's got its functions of what it needs, what it calls garbage, what it gets rid of, you know, how that gets taken up, and there's a very cooperative effort among the, I don't know, six billion cells or whatever you have in your body. There's all this cooperation in order to provide Sustenance, get rid of the garbage, uh, you know, do the functions that are, that are required to make the body work. And uh, inside of that, there's kind of a, an economic system going on of services provided and, and uh, benefit gained. And then he's looking at that system. And because it's a fractal process, he looks at that system and says that he can see the, kind of the basis of a process of economics for people. Just and that's based on that same kind of system, and it's because it's fractal. So the same way that the cells work, you know, is a way that a cooperative, any cooperative system could work. So that's the that's kind of the the idea of it. So uh, yeah, that's a that's a neat thing about the uh, the fractal processes. So here we are, a a digital information system, a virtual reality, and then we create virtual realities and we might even say that the internet is a virtual reality you know there's so much information there it's not a it's not a game that has a, a plot but it's it's a virtual reality people can get can get lost in the internet just like they could get lost in you know playing uh, you know VR games you have to have balance there So what's next, Donna?
0: All right, our next question moves from what you call physical matter reality here to non-physical matter reality. The question from John begins with a quote from your book. At one time, we were less constrained than we are now. There was more direct interaction meddling between NPMR and PMR. The extent of that interaction created results that were interfacing with the intent of the experiment, consequently, more restrictive rules were made, and our current system became, as we know it now. The rules, the structural dynamics, can change, but not casually, and not often, or at the integrity, of, or the integrity of the experiment will be ruined. Um, In the meantime, an embodied citizen of PMR who has a well-developed consciousness and is operationally aware in MPMRN has a powerful advantage in that he or she can forcefully interact with the energy of others, both within and outside PMR, and remain within the law and thus protected by it. We are allowed to meddle in the energy of others because such activity exercises as an important part of our evolutionary potential and because our consciousness is generally so underdeveloped that we can't do much damage, uh, much like letting a bunch of toddlers throw Nerf balls at each other. John was wondering if this sort of opening and closing is a natural part of a given PMR's progression through its early stages and through maturity and so on. It seems yes. similar to what takes place when a baby is born and matures. Um, what was it like when this was open? Um, what will it be like, and what are some of the things that need to happen in order for this to open up again?
1: Okay. Um, yes, it is a natural progression. Uh, it's also... Part of it is... is is this is, a, uh, this is an ongoing evolving process, this, this consciousness, larger consciousness system and our virtual reality as a part of this larger consciousness system is an ongoing process. And like any big complex system, you set the thing to work and then you let it work. And then you kind of say, well, I can tweak that a little bit and make it a little more efficient and a little more effective. So you make tweaks on it. You modify it slightly, not enough to disrupt everything, but you just tweak it as you go. So we do have these um, things that, let me call them, uh, they're more like corporate policy than of rules in the rule set. You know, we talk about the rule set where everything has to evolve according to the rule set. That's our physics and our science. But besides the rule set, we have things like the science certainty principle. And that's not really a part of the rule set. It's more like company policy. And it's, it's, a, it's a way of kind of doing business. And it, you might think of it as a rule, but it's, a, it's a, a policy that says if everybody who is of low consciousness understood about using their intent to influence future probability, we would have a very messy unhealthy unproductive situation we'd have all sorts of people trying to use their intent to modify other people to their own advantage you know all the employees would be trying to make their boss you know uh, give them a raise and not the other person they you know so these these little pressures would be on from all over people would be using this parents upon their children, children upon their parents you know uh, uh, you would have people who would uh, uh, act like uh, you know Al Capone's uh, you know uh, gangsters in Chicago, and if you don't do what I want, you know I will make you ill. I will make your children ill. Uh, people would work very hard at gaining this kind of power so they could use it to their own advantage. And if you had everyone trying to manipulate everyone else through these. Um, means of of intent modifying future probability you can just imagine what a what a nightmare you know what a dysfunctional situation that would be and we don't want to go there so we have a psi uncertainty principle that's kind of a a policy here that says that you can you can do things that violate the rule set you can do things that are not uh um, normal, if you like, but are paranormal. But you have restrictions. If it's something that would cause widespread, you know, dislocation, widespread change in, in attitudes uh, toward this thing. In other words, if you do something that becomes widely credible, well, we're going to take some of that credibility away. It's not going to work when uh, you know when the cameras are rolling and you know five million people are watching. Suddenly, you know, what you're trying to demonstrate doesn't seem to work for you anymore. And that's the science certainty principle saying it's not really a, you know, a good idea to do that. It would be a long-term entropy increase, not a long-term entropy decrease. We're not ready for that yet. That would be like putting guns in in every other locker of the, you know, uh, uh, of the locker room in a high school, right, or in an elementary school. That would just be foolish. You don't want to do that. You don't want to put power in the hands of individuals who aren't grown up enough to deal with it. You're just going to cause mayhem. So we have these policies. And when we started out with this experiment, there was more communication between the larger consciousness system and then the humans here that were in this virtual reality. That tended to be an easier connection. Right now, that's not that trivial connection. People spend years learning how to, you know, to do that. Whereas then it was a very easy, natural thing to do, and because of that, there was a certain amount of dysfunction created. People weren't entirely on their own; they were starting to lean, become uh, uh, less self, you know, less responsible for themselves, and more dependent on daddy to give them the right answer. You know, this sort of thing the larger consciousness system became an extension of their their own egos and what they were trying to do. So that connection, which first was seen as, that will be helpful. Let people, you know, have a, a, a pretty available interface that will be helpful to them. Turned out, well, that's not really so helpful. You know, it may have been helpful for them if they're a little more grown up, but because they're not, it's really a detriment. So that was tuned back to the point that... Uh, that was not so available, at least not so directly, you know, it's still available in terms of maybe pictures and metaphors and a few other things that are more, that are less, less, uh, precise, more, uh, interpretive, less uh, direct information. So we still have, we still can make this connection, but it's not the, it's not the, um, connection that we used to have. Now, will that ever turn around? Sure. As we grow up as we when I say we you know we humanity, as we grow up and become more responsible, then there's no reason why things like the science certainty principle won 't be relaxed to the degree that we can deal with it, so it 's all part of tweaking the system as the system changes and as the system the system grows and it's it uh, yeah, it, that's what I was getting to there in the book, that it used to be that that connection was more transparent than it is now and more direct, and uh, that turned out not to be as good an idea as it was first perceived that it might have been. You know? And people now complain about that. I hear that, and they say, well, if this system really wanted us to evolve, why doesn't it help? You know, Why doesn't it talk to us? Why doesn't it you know, encourage us? Why isn't it more active in the process? And the reason is that doesn't really work because it would be interacting with your intellect, not with you at the being level. And that intellect is typically full of fear and ego processes going on. So it's just not that productive to interact with you. People in their dreams um, uh, will say the same, you know, have, have kind of the, the same uh, attitude and, and the reactions, the things that you get in your dreams are almost always um, being level. Things. You, you interact in your dreams right out of the being level, not from the intellect. That's one of the great advantages of the dream reality is that your intellect is, you know, sleeping. Your intellect is, is not uh, running the show. It's you at the being level running the show. So the fears and the, and the ego and what you are is what happens. That's The decisions you make are right out of the being level, mostly. In your dreams, it's not until you have a lucid dream that your intellect actually gets turned on, and you begin to, to uh, act out of the intellect rather than out of the being level. So this dream world is a very handy place, just because the intellect is not working. What you what you do in a dream is pretty much the way you are. Um, people talk about their guides, and they say, well, I wish the guide would just talk to me," you know, give me some direct conversation. And instead, they get pictures and metaphors and things like that, and that's because the guide does not want to interact with them at the intellectual level. That's just not so profitable. Now, other people do talk and interle- inter- interact intellectually with their guys because they're able to deal with that better. They're able to make use of that. But if you can't make use of that, if the ego would tend to take charge of that, then better to send some pictures and, you know, give you some signs and do this kind of, uh, you know, more difficult to interpret stuff and let you deal with it at that level, which gets you back more to your intuition. You know, what does that sign, what does that metaphor mean? Well, you get those answers mainly through your intuition, not through your intellect. The intellect can't process what does that symbol or metaphor mean very well. What does that sign mean? I asked a question and I saw this big black hole with a shiny thing in the middle of it and then such and such and such happened. What the heck does that mean, you know? And that's because they're not trying to engage your intellect. And the only way to get what that means is to use your intuition, which is more connected to your being level, you see? So that's the reason that some guides just refuse to talk to you is because you're not really ready for conversation. Your conversation would be dysfunctional for your growth. Now, you might think it would be great. Well, I'd have this smart guy that I could ask questions to all the time. Well, should I do this or should I do that? Give me an answer. Well, now you're giving up some of your free will, you see, to somebody else because you figure, well, here's this guy. They know more than I do. They're smarter than me. I'll just ask them and do that. Well, now it's not your choice anymore. You're giving up your, your free will to somebody else. So that's you know kind of what's... What's in, what's in play here in these in these things? Uh, that's what the problem was back in the early days. People started giving up their free will to their interface with the larger consciousness system. They were getting too much guidance, and it was becoming an intellectual game and part of their ego structure. So it got cut out. No, we don't talk to you like that anymore. Now we'll give you a a, a very uh, you know we'll give you a symbol and let you figure it out. You know that's. Uh, that's more what's going on, and those people who can who can deal with that effectively, they do get the conversation. But as soon as they start misusing that, or you know uh, abusing it, then they lose the signal. They don't uh, they don't get it anymore. So you only get it as it as it works for you. Does that uh, get your question, John? Yes, definitely. And this is all support for when you say that the best way to begin experiencing psi phenomenon is to grow up first, remove that fear and ego and that intellect and service of fear and ego, and then these things naturally happen, as you say. Right. That's exactly right, because if you start with all that fear and ego intact, you already are at a great disadvantage to making the connection and, and uh, getting anywhere with it. It's, that's a burden that you have to carry. It's like trying to swim with a cement block. You know tie it around your waist. It's very difficult to be a very good swimmer if you gotta you know tote you know throw cement block around with you so first get offload the cement block before you jump in the water is a good idea it'll everything will just work better yeah
2: and what you. about what what about when somebody's uh, going the let's say less uh, pleasurable road with force? Uh, Can is it, in your opinion, um, common that uh, some entities here get access to a really talking interface, but uh, are there any other measures that uh, try to teach that person that forceful uh, way isn't as good as uh, the way of, let's say, acceptance and love?
1: Well, the, the main way that the system teaches people that force is not the best way is, is the feedback from the results of force. Force almost always turns out to be suboptimal. The results that you get, you know, you go in and do something forcefully, and you may get what you force to happen, and you may force it to happen just the way you want it. But the 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 uh, unintended consequences, or you've just created 500 new enemies that really don't like you, you see, whereas before you just had one enemy and you go in and you force them to be nice, well, you've created now a whole lot more. And if you look at the picture, you say, well, I'm really worse off than I was before. Um, If you get in a habit of forcing things, you will find that that, uh, your life suddenly gets worse and worse and worse. The more you force things to be the way you want it, the less it is the way you want it. Because you think that by forcing this, it'll be better, and yet you force it, and it turns out to be worse. It never works that way. And then the very things you just forced, and you think, well, okay, I'm in control of this now. Just when you think you've got it in control, that thing that you think you're in control of bites your hand and uh, creates even worse problems. And now you're further behind than where you were when you started. So the natural feedback from forcing is that it doesn't work well it's counterproductive, it's it's closer to digging a hole under yourself, you know, digging yourself in deeper and deeper into a problem than it is creating a solution to get you out of the problem. We just Our ego believes that we can force things to be the way we want them, and that's our fear. Our fear too says so the only way we'll get things to be the way we want them is we force them, if we can control things. So this control power force axis is, you know, and we look historically, you know, look at the history where you had that being applied and you will find though it sometimes lasted a fairly long time, but those situations, people, institutions that, that work from force end up sowing the seeds of their own self-destruction and eventually they go away. They disappear. They, they do not, you know, they do not go on for very long because by using force you're creating deeper problems eventually you dig a hole so deep you can't crawl out of it you know and then that's that's the that becomes the beginning of the end so force just doesn't work and you have to have a bigger perspective to see that because it seems to work in the short run you know in the short run you you make money real quickly if you rob a bank and you say well in the short run that's good but in the long run you undermine the very society from which you take all your positives you see you you are uh, if you rip people off you get something in the short run but you impoverish the society in which you exist which is also you know where you get your own sustenance from is now impoverished so it just doesn't work that way you know that's the what's the old uh, the old saying that uh, you know if it's not if it's not good for all, if it's not good for the system, it can't be good for you too. You know, it's it's not like you can somehow bleed the system and get an advantage, and that will stay a long-term advantage. It's only a short-term advantage. In the long term, it's a detriment. It uh, it comes home and and uh, and bites you. So that's the that's the natural you know, that's the natural stick, I guess, for uh, you know, teaching people about using force. Try to use force in your family. Try to use force on your spouse, right? Try to use force on your children. Well, sometimes you need to use force on your children, but that's because they're children. It doesn't work that way when you work with adults. Try to use force on almost any kind of a relationship and you'll see it just makes the relationship worse. Well, that's obvious, right? Well, well, it's not so obvious when the relationship is a banking relationship or a commercial relationship, but it works just the same way. If you use force, if you rip people off and use force, it will come home and bite you. It, uh, you can't do things for your own gain that doesn't poison the pool that you're swimming in, you know, the pool that you have to drink out of however you want the metaphor to run. It, uh, when you take advantage, it comes home to you eventually in the long run. And a lot of people don't care. They say, well, that short run is as, you know, is as long as my life, so I'll just get it all now, and then I don't care. But, you know, they've got children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and the line goes on, and you have to be pretty self-centered to figure it's all about me, and I don't give a damn about anybody else ever. If you're that self-centered, then there's not a whole lot of hope. You know, You're nowhere near ready to start growing up you're probably not quite ready for preschool yet. You know, you're still in diapers and uh, and uh, and at that level. So those people are just the way they are, and that's part of the sadness we talked about. You know, it's sad that some people are like that, but they are, and you just have to accept that that's the way it is and, and go on. Okay, I hope the
0: higher-ups in the banking industry are listening in, but <laughs> probably not.